righty. Well, we did it last week, so we're going to do it again. We're going to start by singing. So take your hymnals, because if we're going to talk on worship, we're going to go to number 23. Number 23. I think we need this on a good spring morning. Is it? Sp- yeah, it's still spring, right? It's not summer yet. It just yeah. is as hot as summer. Um, it's... It's the unofficial. We'll do joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And we'll just sing the first and fourth verses. We'll be good Baptists and skip the middle stuff. Um, <laughs> let's stand together. It's easier to sing when we stand. <clears throat> joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Before we sing the fourth verse. Let your face know what your heart is feeling. Because if it is, you guys all have very sad hearts this morning. All right. Mortals join the happy chorus which the morning star began. Father, love is reigning o'er us, draws us through the Son of Man. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us onward in the triumph song of life. Much better. All right, have a seat. So last week, I kind of gave just a a bit of a a biblical definition of worship. Um, It had three basic elements to it that worship is. It's all about singing, all about fog machines, and, and emotionalism, right? No, no. First one, does anybody remember the three points? We'll see how well you listen. First one started with S. Nope. Sacrifice. All right, yay. Worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament required a lot of blood and sacrifice. Um, Does anybody remember the second one? It involves posture. The posture, your, your, the humbleness of heart uh, coming before the Lord. Um, proskuneo, the word used that is translated worship means to bow down low, of kissing the earth even. Um, and then the third one was, started with an S, rhymes with Zervis. Um, <laughs> All right, okay, there we go. It's service. Uh, Serving the Lord with gladness, coming before his presence with singing. Um, those things, when, when we serve as, as humble servants, that is an act of worship in our everyday life. Um, today I kind of want to take a little bit of a departure from, uh, from, from worship. And, and I'm actually, we're going to talk a little bit, actually we're going to go into the life of William Cooper. One of my favorite uh, hymn writers and and people in church history because I think he's a great encouragement to so many of us. And I did some research when I was in seminary on the life of William Cooper and his understanding of why he wrote his hymns. 
and, and what it was to, to encourage him in his life. So I, I, I pulled out a paper I wrote, and I'm not going to read the entire paper because it would be really boring to all of you, but uh, I'm going to use it as kind of the basis for, for what I, what I want to share today. Um, throughout history, the, the purpose of music and poetry has been to communicate a message, whether in the church or just in life. Within the life and history of the church, though, hymnody has been the reflection of the theology of its people, helping people express their thoughts, their emotions, to go beyond words and texts, speaking to the heart and internalizing the truths of the Word of God. Um, The prayer of the saints has long been to follow the command of Paul in Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. One of my favorite people in church history is Martin Luther. If you know me, you've heard me talk about him many times. Um, Music is the handmaiden of theology, is what he said. And then he said, next to theology... I give music the highest praise and honor. Music is the art of the prophets, the only art that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has ever given us. Um, The first great awakening happened in the mid-1700s, 1731 to 1755, and it rapidly saw the gospel spread across Europe and through what was called British America. And I'm going to call it that because it reminds me where, where our roots are. You're all Brits. <laughs> Anyways, no, through, it, it spread across Europe and through British America through the preaching ministries of George Whitfield, through John Wesley, through Jonathan Edwards, and, and many others. And as their preaching ministry grew, publications were created and distributed. Uh, and evangelicalism swept throughout Europe and across the American colonies. And it was this world of expanding gospel influence into which William Cooper was born. And, may, and, and the, the world into which he made his contribution to the revival of religion in the Western world. The primary, primary, primary ministry of William Cooper is found, though, through his poetry and his hymnody. His life at the time was uneventful from the standpoint of any public engagement or politics. Yet his literary contributions are widely considered to be among the most influential works of his day. John Piper wrote of of William Cooper saying, But those of us who are older have come to see that the events of the soul are probably the most important events in our lives, and the battles in this man's soul were of epic proportions. Cooper had the ability to Marry the beauty of poetic verse with deep theological awareness. It helped him to understand his Savior. His skill was appreciated by those in the church, but also gained great respect in society in general. One of his biographers says this, Cooper was not merely the leading poet of his day, but one of the most successful agents of God in spreading the good news throughout the English-speaking world during the 18th and 19th centuries. 
authors who have been proclaimed as literary geniuses by the secular world and yet have been recognized as great men of God by the Church of Christ have been very few in number. Perhaps there have only been three British authors to enjoy the fame since biblical times. These three are John Bunyan, John Milton, and William Cooper. John Bunyan's fame has outlasted that of Milton and Cooper, but in the early 19th century, Cooper's fame outshone them all. Though he gained much respect, Cooper's life was filled with personal struggle. It was filled with inner turmoil and even suicidal tendencies. His understanding of the riches of God's grace and his dependency upon the atoning blood of Christ sustained him through his darkest hours. The truths, as described by Cooper, formed some of the bloodiest and yet most precious images that we have in all of hymnody. His work in the Olney, Olney hymnal, O-L-N-E-Y, not only, but Olney hymnal, along with his pastor and colleague John Newton, um, form a clear understanding of his Calvinist theology, particularly in regard to the atonement. One theologian said, he embraced Whitfield's Calvinistic theology rather than Wesley's Arminianism, but it was a warm evangelical brand of Calvinism shaped in Cooper's case, largely by one of the healthiest men in the 18th century, the old African blasphemer, John Newton. And so what I want to do today is kind of look at John or at, at William Cooper and understand the nature of, of the atonement that he understood and why it was so important to him and how he lived that out and how he showed that and how today we still benefit from the work that he did. So just to give a little bit of a biography, actually it's an extensive biography because it's a fascinating biography. To understand William Cooper's view of the atonement, one must recognize his life, his conversion, and the ministry that he had. He was born in Hertford, England in 1731 to Reverend John and Ann Cooper. His father was a chaplain to King George II. Um, and came from a lineage of poets dating back as far as the 16th century. And John Cooper encouraged his sons to continue the family legacy, writing poetry um, and, and with especially becoming, um, or in, sorry, writing poetry in the manner of William Congreve, Nicholas Rowe, and Matthew Pryor, people that have long gone that we don't even remember too much of, um, but they became influential in, in, in how William Cooper wrote his poetry. William Cooper's mother was of noble ancestry, hence why his father was able to be the chaplain to King George II. Uh, her father was Roger Dunn of Ludhall, Ludham Hall in Norfolk, and she left a lasting impression upon her son after her death when he was only six years old. One of his biographers says, 50, 50 years afterwards, on receiving her picture, he dwells as fondly on the cherished features as if he had just mourned her death. He writes to his cousin, Mrs. Bondham, who had sent him the portrait, I received it 
the night before last and viewed it with trepidation of nerves and spirits somewhat akin to what I should have felt had the dear original presented herself to my embrace. I kissed it and hung it where it is the last object that I see at night and, of course, the first on which I open my eyes in the morning. His feelings, indeed, were all of the intense kind. That's what his biographer says. After his mother's death at the age of six, William's father sent him to a boarding school, and later, between the ages of 10 and 17, he attended Westminster School where he learned French, Latin, Greek. Um, try learning that at such a young age. How many of you speak French, Latin, and Greek? <laughs> I think it's impressive at the age of 10 years old to be learning that. His language ability was so strong that in the latter years of his life, he spent his time translating the Greek of Homer and the French of Madame Guillaume. Um, from Westminster, he, he entered into studying law at his father's will, but, but never applied himself and only casually involved himself in his work. Uh, instead, he focused <laughs> his attention upon a young woman. So kind of what some people do when they go off to college. Um, uh, she happened to be his cousin, though. But the two fell deeply in love by the end of 1750. Cooper says, it said, it was at this time we first, f or no, his biographer says, it was at this time we first find Cooper writing about Eden, which was to become the one of his major themes. And of course, his Eden was shared by Theodora, or Delia, as Cooper named her. And during these walks with Delia, Cooper would forget the world and imagine himself as Adam before the fall with his still innocent Eve. Um, being cousins, um, their relationship was tumultuous and after a long courtship and even an engagement, Theodora's father forbade the two from ever getting married. Um, these two sweethearts finally admitted that they could never marry and eventually parted ways. Um, this was tragic in Cooper's life um, and, and sunk him into deep depression. What remains fascinating about Cooper's life is his bouts of depression. In 1752, he sank into his first paralyzing depression, the first of four major battles with a mental breakdown so severe as to set him to staring out windows for weeks at a time. Struggle with despair became the theme of his life. He was 21 years old and not yet a believer, though. Yet God was gracious to give Cooper hope particularly through the poetry of George Herbert and a change of scenery. Cooper's life was marked by turmoil. In July of 1756, his father died, and depression set in again. In the same, in the same month, he lost his best friend by drowning, and he and Theodora finally parted company for the last time, and they were never probably to see each other again, and William Cooper's life was a constant accumulation of pain. The reason I want to use William Cooper this morning to talk about is because he's someone a lot of us can identify with. In 1763, Cooper's uncle offered him a choice of one of three offices in the House of Lords, to which Cooper chose the post of clerkship in the Journals of Parliament, 
Well, most individuals would find this to be an exciting career advancement. Instead, Cooper was paralyzed by fear. And the stress of forthcoming public examination brought him to a point of mental breakdown, and he three times tried to commit suicide. Because of this, he, he, he resigned his job. He, he couldn't do it. Cooper's cousin, Martin Madden, an evangelical pastor, was, was called in to speak with Cooper. And Madden began explaining the basics of salvation, going through the fundamentals of faith from the beginning. And Cooper would just listen intently to his cousin. Instead of seeing his station of, in life as, as unique from every other person, though, Cooper began to understand that he was one of the entire fallen human race. And he stood just as guilty as any other man and was just as eligible to experience God's grace in light of that as well. Seeing that at last he was on the verge of finding the answer to all his problems, William begged Martin to arrange that he should live in his neighborhood. So Martin hired lodgings for his cousin in a house next door to his own, and there William was able to discuss the way of salvation further with his cousin. And Cooper began to feel that his salvation was near. However, the next few days, Cooper, instead of getting better, got worse. He nearly successfully committed suicide over his, his horrible conviction of his sin. Cooper, in his own words, wrote this. He said, Conviction of sin took place, especially of that just committed. The meanness of it, as well as its atrocity, they were exhibited to me in colors so inconceivably strong that I despised myself with a contempt not to be imagined or expressed. This sense of it secured me from the repetition of a crime which I could not reflect on without abhorrence. Before I rose from bed, it was suggested to me that there was nothing wanted but murder, to fill up the measures of my iniquities, and that, though I failed in my design, yet I had all the guilt of that crime to answer for, a sense of God's wrath and deep despair of escaping it, and instantly succeeded. The fear of death became much more prevalent in me than ever the desire it had been. That sounds like a man who is hurting over his sin and wanting to escape it. Cooper was moved to an insane asylum and was committed to the care of Dr. Nathaniel Cotton who in God's providence was a strong evangelical believer. And one morning before breakfast, went out for a walk, Cooper found a Bible on a bench and he started to read and he recalls that great provision, that providential provision. And Cooper says, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the 11th of St. John where Lazarus is raised from the dead and so saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the revelation, little thinking that it was an exact time of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. I sighed and said, 
Oh, that I had not rejected so good a redeemer, that I had not forfeited, forfeited all his favors. Thus was my heart softened, though not yet enlightened. After doing that, he returned to breakfast, but continued to ponder that which which he had read. And he went back to the scriptures, this time reading Romans 3.25, which says, For God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What happened next, uh, uh, William Cooper describes best in his own words. I love this. He says, Immediately I received strength to believe, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and at the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend Madden had said to me so long before revived in all its clearness with demonstration of the Spirit and with power. Unless the Almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. That should excite you. That should remind you of your own salvation experience. Cooper has had experienced salvation, and, and though his joy was obvious, those around him remained a little skeptical, including the doctor <laughs> that was working with him. But soon, however, Dr. Cotton uh, was soon convinced that God had done a great work in Cooper's life, and he was so grateful for his stay at St. Albans and, and the friendship that had developed with his doctor in an insane asylum. asylum that he actually committed to staying there for another year after his conversion, studying the scriptures and pouring out his praise in poetry. Uh, In June of 1765, Cooper finally left St. Albans and moved in with the Unwin family in Huntington. Um, Though only eight years Cooper Sr., Mrs. Mary Unwin became like a mother to him. Even after the unfortunate death of her husband in 1767, Cooper lived under Mary Unwin's roof roof for for over 30 years until she died. This relationship with the Unwin family led to Cooper eventually meeting with John Newton, in which a, a lifelong friendship and ministry began at that point. John Newton had heard that a family near his parish had lost a father and a husband and made a visit to this family, the Unwins, and impressed by his pastoral care, Cooper and the Unwins moved to the town of Olney to sit under Newton's preaching and were invited even to live in the Newton home. John Newton took a very special interest in William because of his shared passion for lost souls and his own poetic fervor. Um, This period in Cooper's life proves to be basically finally the happiest he has on record. Um, In the spring of the 1770s, or in the 1770s, however, Cooper's malady returned and, and Newton wisely gave Cooper the task of helping him compile a hymn book. 
one of the first ever used in Anglican worship, and together they wrote, wrote the only hymns, and it's very, off, very difficult to recognize where Newton's ends and where, where Cooper begins. And um, So what was happening was, was John Newton saw the, the, these bouts of depression starting to seep back in, so what did he encourage him to do? Sing. Write poetry. Remind yourself of what you know, not what you feel. These hymns were to be used in midweek meetings, and both poets leaned heavily upon the language of Zion to to craft poetic works which taught the deeper truths of the gospel. And just to kind of take a little separation from from this paper here, it's interesting when we consider what how hymns and, and songs were written not even more than fifty years ago, they were written out of something out of experience, out of, out, of, out of knowledge of the scriptures, and they were an overflow of that. So often in, in, in current contemporary culture, how, in contemporary Christian culture, how are songs written today? They're written because someone at your record label says you need to write a song that we need to have as a hit on the radio in a, in a couple months here. And the only way you're going to get paid is if you write a hit song. Look how the church has turned in just a matter of a couple decades. It should cause us a pause for reflection on where we get our songs. And what's the heart behind it? But getting into the only hymnal... Uh, Cooper's hymn writing was was a brief but defining period of his life. Um, the only hymns were an idea of Newton's to employ Cooper's poetic and his artistic abilities in order to benefit the, the local congregation. They began writing and compiling these hymns in 1771 but the perp- with the purpose of edifying and educating the church but also to join the people of the village together in corporate worship. It has been said... The people of Olney were lace makers. Working by hand in their damp, ill-lit hovels, they were poor and they were ignorant and suffered a great deal of hardship. Newton loved them and looked after them, even at the expense of the few wealthy members of his congregation who were by no means pleased to see their church filled up with noisy and uncouth villagers. That man's got a pastor's heart. (laughs) I love it. Yet while these hymns served the purpose of corporate blessing, Newton believed that they would serve as a therapeutic outlet for Cooper. And together they compiled a collection of 348 hymns. 280 were written by John Newton and 68 by Cooper for their congregation at Olney. Um, Imagine if, I mean, it's not going to happen if Pastor Steve and I basically sat down and wrote our entire hymnal just for you guys. That's essentially what happened is these two men came together and they wrote all the songs for the church. They came out of, out of the sermons and out of their personal study. Um, that to me is a fascinating thing when we consider what they did. But these, ser- these hymns served as, as William Cooper's personal treatise on the foundational things of the Christian faith. And they helped him define and personalize the difficult doctrine of theology to a simple people. The uncouth the noisy villagers of only. 
It says, in fact, no hymn writer perhaps was more beautifully expressed has more beautifully expressed the true grounds of Christian faith and hope and joy, while some of his hymns are in themselves pretty clear evidences of what he himself in his brighter days experienced and seem to testify of his own realization as sometimes of the privileges of true believers. Cooper put his theology on display, is what he did. And with the effects of the First Great Awakening still being felt, his writing was quickly absorbed into the surrounding um, society. Um, the only hymns were published in 1779 and caused Cooper to gain a public um, persona, uh, a spot in the public eye. Um, of this collection of hymns, it says, by far the most important and influential evangelical hymnal, other than those produced by the Wesleys, was John Newton and William Cooper's only hymns. In contrast to Wesley and his Armenian doctrine, Cooper held to a Calvinistic creed. Concurrently with the publication of the hymnal, the Church of England was beginning to experience a reformation itself. And the only hymns made a, make, mark a point of transition into the introduction of hymnody into the Church of England. It was the last group of hymnals that sought to bring evangelical hymnody within the Church of England without, in, without attempting to accommodate the Book of Common Prayer. With Cooper's past, his tumultuous, his troubled, his, his, his struggled past with depression, his understanding of Scripture, especially in regards to salvation and his own salvation, carried him to the end of his days. And these hymns continue to hold a place within Christendom, even among some of the most loved hymns of the church. We sing two of them in our church on a regular basis. Does anybody know what they are? There is a fountain is the, is the most commonly known one. Anyone know the other ones? Huh? It's on page 88. You're, you're cheating. Uh, <laughs> God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Yeah. So, um, to me, it's uh, this life of, of, of William Cooper is so fascinating. And I think it's such a... a a unique understanding for us to remind ourselves um, that these songs come out of something. The reason we, we sing these songs is because they remind us of our deep faith and they help us to understand. I always say to people, I tease Pastor Steve, people don't remember the three points of your ser sermon on Wednesday afternoon when they're pulling weeds in their garden, but they're humming my hymns. <laughs> and so the reason we want deep theological truths in our hymnody is because while you're pulling weeds on Wednesday morning, you're humming the hymns. And what better thing than to saturate our hearts and our minds with deep theological truths? Um, as was the trend in most other hymnody of the 18th century, the hymns of William Cooper and John Newton were very personal in nature. Uh, Sean Price uh, says this, he says, 
18th century evangelicalism had a definite effect upon the content and subject matter of hymns. Evangelicalism stressed the need for an individual to be personally convicted of sin and to personally repent of sin and acknowledge Jesus as Savior. The English evangelical tradition inherited a focus upon individual repentance from the 17th century Puritans and German Moravian Church. By forming a connection to the 17th century Puritan piety, 18th century evangelicals were able to form to view their reforms at least in part as a continuity of early English spiritual reform. So hymnody was meant to actually connect us to the past is how they viewed it. But it was also a personal connection. Um, and hymnody was, became personal and so did the understanding of doctrine. Cooper would saturate his poetry with doctrine yet it even carried a tone of personal internalization and application. The blood of Christ was a massive theme throughout Cooper's hymnody. Presented itself over and over again, and Cooper felt deeply that the atoning blood of Christ was the only thing that brought satisfaction for his sin and his guilt. He also understood that atonement was not limited to Jesus' death and payment on the cross, but also the benefits that are imparted to those who are united with Christ. Cooper stated, he goes, I have been vain of my understanding and of my requirements in this place, and now God has made me a little better than an idiot. And as much to say, now be proud if you can. Well, while I have any senses left, my thoughts will be poured out in praise of God. I have an interest in Christ, in his blood and sufferings, and my sins are forgiven. Have I not cause to praise him? Oh, I love that. I love that. John 3.16 is the most familiar passage pointing to the love of God as a cause for the atonement, but because God, God's love speaks of his character and the cross demonstrates that al- the, the ultimate lengths that he was willing to demonstrate his love for us. Um, but the justice of God also required that God find a way that the penalty due to us for our sins would be paid. earlier when we talked about Cooper's conversion, he finally experienced a peace that he had not known before. It radically changed his demeanor and finally gave him rest. Cooper credits the atoning blood of Christ in one of his poems or hymns called Jehovah Shalom, the, the Lord said peace. Cooper talks about the relationship between the love and justice of God, connecting it to Judges 6.24. The, the passage that says, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And this is the hymn. I'll read it. Jesus, whose blood so freely streamed to satisfy the law's demand, by thee from guilt and wrath redeemed before the Father's face I stand. To reconcile offending man, make justice drop her angry rod. What creature could have formed the plan or who fulfill it but a God? No drop remains of all the curse for wretches who deserve the whole. No arrows dipped in wrath to pierce the guilty but returning soul. Peace by such means so dearly bought, what rebel could have hoped to see? Peace by his injured sovereign wrought, his sovereign fastened to the tree. Now, Lord, thy feeble worm prepare 
for strife with earth and hell begins. Confirm and gird me for the war. They hate the soul that hates his sins. Let them in horrid league agree. They may assault, they may distress, but cannot quench thy love to me, nor rob me of the Lord my peace. Beautiful. Connecting his own conversion experience, Cooper understood that Christ's sacrifice and his blood created that perfect marriage of love and justice. Romans 3.25, Paul explains that a full penalty of sin must be paid for sins um, in order to restore fellowship and relationship with God. And while God had been forgiving sins in the Old Testament, there was no penalty or full payment being made. However, Christ when he died on the cross, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wayne Grudem states that therefore both the love and the justice of God were the ultimate cause of the atonement. It's not helpful for us to ask which is more important, however, because without the love of God, he would never have taken any steps to redeem us. Yet without the justice of God, the specific requirement that Christ should earn our salvation by dying for our sins would not have been met. The first two stanzas connect the satisfaction of the law in, in the willing sacrifice of God's own blood in that wonderful hymn. What's the nature of the atonement? Well, Cooper explored the, the cause of the atonement. His most famous contribution to, to hymnody expounded upon the nature of the atonement with some of the greatest imagery, I think, that is in all of poetry. Praise for the fountain opened is the original title, but presented distinct perspectives to the subject's atonement, the subject of atonement's nature. This hymn, more commonly known as There is a Fountain. And Cooper used rich, creative words based off of Zechariah 13, verse 1, which says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now I'm just going to add a little personal story in here. There are churches that I have been to and even one that I served in years ago that I mean we've talked about the bloodiness of what worship requires one of the first churches I ever served in I was told by the pastor after singing on a communion Sunday there is a fountain filled with blood I was pulled into the pastor's office afterwards later that Sunday afternoon and told what was that said, what do you mean? That song was so bloody. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, we will never sing that in this church again. And I said, why? He goes, it is so graphic and so bloody. Do you want to explain that to my eight-year-old daughter? And I said, somebody has to. Unfortunately, I was a little bit more arrogant in my, and, and I did not handle it well. Um, but there are churches that say, well, I was told then, and I've heard other churches say, we will not sing about blood in our churches. 
I said, then you won't sing the gospel. When we consider, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And William Cooper, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Most of our hymnals end there, but he continued on. He says, Lord, I believe that thou hast prepared, unworthy though I be, for me a blood-bought free reward, a golden harp for me. Tis strung and tuned for endless years and formed by power divine to sound in God the Father's ears no other name but thine. I mean, this echoes the New Testament passage in Ephesians 2.13 that says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Cooper brings the death of Christ into reality. That it is both gruesome and, at the same time, incredibly beautiful. It's scandalous in that the image of the blood of the Son of God flowing in a fountain is grotesque in its imagery. But Cooper speaks of the blood of Jesus in an explicit way that was rarely done in hymnody. This hymn speaks of the divine sacrifice, but most 18th century hymn writers would not have went so far as to place such a bloody image in the mind of the hearer. Cooper does this because he wants the singer to recognize the shocking reality that the very Son of God spilled his blood on behalf of a wicked, vile sinner. The nature of the atonement was not a pleasant picture, but one of great cost, great pain, and great suffering. I, I love William Cooper. I love how he used these truths to cement what he knew when he battled with this depression. This is what bolstered him in his darkest hours. This is what caused him to sing when he didn't feel like singing. The verbal action of being plunged beneath that flood conjures up images of baptism. Yet the tradition of Cooper's Anglican background and the scriptures 
did not lend to that interpretation for him necessarily, but it does for us. One person says, There's a difference between the baptism of water and the plunging about which Cooper writes. The Anglican Church of Olney would have only held to a covenantal view of baptism in which a child is brought into the covenant of baptism, also called pedo-baptism. We're talking about baptism today in the service. So I feel like I can bring this up right now. So <laughs> that act of baptism would have been an uh, aspiration rather than, or an aspersion rather than, than full immersion. Full immersion baptism brings to mind both the act of John the Baptist baptizing him in the, in the Jordan or perhaps the dissenting Baptist who believed in cradle baptism. The Baptists believed that only adults who were able to satisfy or to testify to their personal conviction could be baptized, and this should be done through full immersion. This baptism took place by full immersion. In addition, the Christian tradition has never linked being plunged into the water in the sacrament of baptism with being plunged into the blood of Jesus, as Cooper seems to do in his first stanza. Yet, Cooper continued to employ the image of a, of a sinner being immersed in the blood of Christ for the cleansing of sin. In another poem, he writes, Goodwill to men and zeal for God, his, very, his every thought engross. He longs to be baptized with blood. He pants to reach the cross. Cooper was convinced that the blood of Christ was the only thing that could cleanse a man of sin. He says, O cleanse me in a Savior's blood, transform me by thy power, and make me thy beloved abode, and let me rove no more. Cooper loved the limited atonement idea. I won't go too extensively into that, but just listen to what he says. He says, What thousands never knew the road, what thousands hate it when tis known, but None but the chosen tribes of God will seek or choose it for their own. He understood that that particular or limited nature of those who are called. His clear understanding that Christ's atonement was not wasted upon those who did not receive it was a matter of the sovereignty of God. For Cooper, those who respond to grace are those who have been given grace to enable them to respond. The choice is God's alone. This is a very Calvinistic teaching. I mean, in, in there is a fountain. It says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Why or how or when? Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Think of those words when you sing it next time. For those of us who have been ransomed by God, Cooper sees the blood as fulfilling all its intended purposes and power. With great clarity, Cooper wrote in the third stanza of, of his hymn on opening, a, on opening a place for social prayer that he understood the atonement was reserved for the elect. He said this, Dear shepherd of thy chosen few, thy former mercies here renew. Here to our waiting hearts proclaim the sweetness of thy saving name. He continues to, to make the case for limited atonement. He says, He speaks obedient to his call. Our warm affections move. Did he but shine alike on all, then all alike would love. So why do we look at Cooper? 
Why is he important? Cooper's appreciation for the atoning work of Christ, his gratitude for the blood which cleansed from all sin, and his deep desire to put into practice the truth of the knowledge of his transformed life were evidenced clearly in his hymnal. His 68 hymns were saturated with some of the bloodiest and painstaking vivid descriptions of Christ's accomplishment on the cross. Unfortunately, even with clear knowledge of what Christ had done on his behalf, his struggle with depression continued to challenge his faith. One wrote, Before Cooper could complete his share of the only hymns, he had what was called the fatal dream. He did not say precisely what the dream was, but only that a word was spoken that reduced him to spiritual despair, something to the effect of, It is all over with you. You are lost. These terrible nightmares drove Cooper to madness again, believing that God rejected him. Thoughts and attempts of suicide plagued him, yet God providentially continued to spare Cooper's life. His friend, John Newton, sacrificed much in order to support him through his struggles. But eventually... Newton had to leave Olney and Cooper in 1780 to begin a, a new pastor in, in London. Cooper's 26 years in Olney and later in Weston Underwood saw him achieve great respects as a poet, poet and a letter writer, yet it is his com- contribution to hymnody that still continues to encourage the church. To understand that Cooper's hymns were written from a deep personal experience, give the singer an acute awareness of the practical necessity of theology, particularly that of the atoning work of Christ. The blood of Jesus is what drew William to faith in 1764, but repeated bouts of depression caused him to waver on more than one occasion, even unsuccessfully attempting suicide. But Cooper wrote his last poem in 1799, and he called it The Castaway, and then he died. How does the church respond to the hymns of atonement penned by William Cooper today? No hymn writer pens their work without without considering and being influenced by their own circumstances. Cooper had a strong theology, Calvinistic theology, present with him in his hymnody, yet his intellectual knowledge regarding the sovereignty of God in all things somehow seemed to escape him in the end. For the modern believer, understanding the struggles that these hymns were written in becomes a point of application. Cooper struggled comprehending the truth internally, but he knew the scriptures were clear. His writing, in contrast, ultimately in contrast, ultimately to the end of his life, evidence of faith that's, that supersedes his circumstances. Perhaps Cooper's own words in his beloved hymn, Light Shining Out of Darkness, gives testimony to trusting the grace of God working in spite of the individual. Not only does Cooper learn to trust in the grace of God, but the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ's blood, a truly mysterious grace. And it's these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep 
and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread. They are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Wonderful, wonderful words for us to remember, and a life for us to remember. And I think we can be encouraged by it. I know I am. Um, when, when times are difficult, and who of us has not gone through difficult times? I love that William turned to what he knew rather than what he felt. That is what we need to do. Lean upon the atoning work of Christ. Lean upon that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, well, there is no man on earth that we are meant to idolize except Jesus Christ and to put in, in that place of great prominence. We thank you for the the long line of believers and godly men and women that we have that you have used to, in their testimony, remind us of your sufficiency and your goodness to us. Thank you for William Cooper and the testimony of a man who loved his Savior and battled the sin that so easily entangled him not trusting in his own strength, but trusting in the merits of who you are. Help us this day to do the same. Help us to do the same tomorrow and the next day and the next day. For your ways are mysterious and your wonders as you perform them are all in your sovereign hand. Help us to lean upon the goodness of who you are reminding ourselves of what you have done in the atoning work of Christ. We pray these things in the blood of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen.